Okay, well, please turn with me in your Bibles, Psalm 37. Psalm 37, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 34 today. And our focus will be 32 to 34 today. Psalm 37, verse 1 says this. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow, to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice, and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray today that you would teach us, Lord, concerning the outcome of both the righteous and the wicked. Lord, how it is that you care for your people, Lord, how you cherish them, Lord, you watch over them and preserve them, Lord, so that they will not be condemned. But Lord, your enemies, you will repay to their face, Lord, those who hate you, and Lord, you will give to them what they deserve. And so, Father, we pray that seeing and knowing this, Lord, that we would depart from evil and do good. Lord, that we would put our faith in Christ. Lord, that we would turn from sin. 
and that we would live a godly life, and Lord, walking in your ways. So Lord, set this hope before us today. Lord, the hope of reward, Lord, for those who seek you, and Lord, the hope of, Lord, vengeance upon those who are our enemies. Lord, that we might persevere and endure until the very end. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week we looked at verses 30 and 31 where the prophet is giving the evidence for the righteousness of the righteous and the source of this evidence. Right? The evidence was in verse 30, that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. It is out of the abundance of the heart or whatever fills the heart, this is what the mouth speaks from. The mouth being one of the members that clearly displays whether a man is righteous or wicked. Because a good tree will bear good fruit, and an evil tree will bear evil fruit. The lips of the man, what comes forth from the mouth, shows what is in the heart of the man. The man who has wisdom and justice in his mouth proves that he has wisdom and justice in his heart. He proves that he has the Spirit of God within his heart, and that he is a child of God. Likewise, the fool. He proves by the foolishness that comes out of his mouth, his lies, his foolishness, Lord, his human wisdom, whatever it is, that he does not have the wisdom of God within him. And then in this way, by way of evidence, the mouth will either justify the man or the mouth will condemn the man. The words are brought forward on the day of judgment to prove what kind of a man we are. A good man with a good heart, evidenced by salvation, or an evil man with an evil heart, evidencing condemnation. Then we look at verse 31. Right? What is the source of the wisdom and justice found in the mouth of the righteous? Right? The words are the fruit, and that fruit comes from a root. And the root is the law of God written on the heart by the Holy Spirit of God. When the Holy Spirit regenerates a man, when the Holy Spirit indwells a man, he writes the law of God on the heart of that man. And the law of God is a perfect deposit of the wisdom and justice of God. This law is internalized on the heart, and it is from this law on the heart that the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom and justice. This is the abundance that is in the heart out of which the mouth speaks. And we saw that no man has the ability on his own to inscribe the law of God on his heart. Only the Spirit of Christ can do this. The law on the lips shows that the law is in the heart, which proves that the Holy Spirit indwells that man. And as it says in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. No spirit, no child of God. But the converse is true as well. If the Spirit is in the person, then he belongs to God. And the evidence that the Spirit is there is the law on the heart and the law upon the mouth. And then as a result of this, the one who is described in this way, his steps will never be moved. He will never slip. God will watch over him. God will guard him. And God will preserve him on the day of judgment. So that's where we ended last time. Today we're going to pick up in verse 32. 32. Psalm 37, verses 32 and 33. says, The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Here it says, the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. 
Right? Though the righteous man has God's Holy Spirit within him, though he has God's law on his heart, and though he is speaking wisdom and justice from his mouth, all of these are commendable traits. These are reasons for a man to receive praise and honor from his fellow man, and yet we see here that this is not the case at all. Instead, the good of the righteous is being repaid with evil from the wicked. As it says in Psalm chapter 4, verse 2, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Right? What is our honor becomes our reproach in this present life. Right? What is shameful is what people are praised for in this present life. But this is the way it is in this present world. Those things that make a man precious in the sight of God will make him detestable in the sight of sinful man. And this is what Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 15. He says, You are those who justify yourself in the sight of men. But God knows your heart, for what is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. What is highly esteemed among sinful men is detestable in the sight of God. And what is highly esteemed in the sight of God is detestable in the sight of sinful man. Well, the wisdom and justice in the mouth of the righteous, the purity of his heart, the leading of the Spirit of Christ, these things are precious in the sight of God, but they're not precious in the sight of men. These things are hated by sinful man. Now the question is, why? Why do men hate wisdom and justice? Why do they hate the righteousness that comes from the righteous man? This is because of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, explains why this is the case. This is why it was the case with Jesus, and this is why it is the case with his followers. John 3, 19, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Right? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Right? They cannot tolerate, they cannot endure, even for a moment, the light of Christ. Well, the wisdom in the mouth of the righteous, the justice that comes from his tongue, the law of God on his heart, the Holy Spirit within him, are these not lights in this present world? These, this is the light of God in this world shining forth from the righteous. And since men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, they will seek to extinguish these lights by any means possible, even if it means spying on the righteous, even if it means devising wicked schemes against them, lying in wait for them so that he might put the righteous man to death. This is how low the wicked will stoop. They have an insatiable desire for sin, and anything or anyone who gets in the way of their sin, they will remove by any means possible, even using deceit and even using murder to get rid of the righteous man. Now, should this be a surprise to us if we're reading the Bible? And the answer is, 
Of course not. Genesis chapter 4. Isn't this what happens at the very beginning? Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance, countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, And it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. There he spied upon the righteous and sought to kill him. And in this case, he succeeded. He did kill him. He put his own brother to death. And why did Cain do this? Because he was wicked and Abel was righteous. He hated him because of his righteousness. Also, Daniel this was the experience of the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, there in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, this is after the king had been deceived by the other uh, counselors to make this injunction throughout the kingdom that no one could pray except to the king. Daniel 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke to the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And then we know from this, Daniel was cast unjustly into the lion's den. Well, are they not spying upon him? Are they not watching him, waiting, hoping to catch him, to trap him in some wicked scheme so that they can have Daniel put to death? And what is the great evil that Daniel has committed against them? Nothing, right? Nothing at all. He's praying to God three times a day, which is good. This is honorable. He should receive glory for this, but instead they use it, his righteousness, to trap him so that he can be put to death. Also, one last example, Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. Luke 20, 19 says, The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people. 
for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. So here they sent spies who are watching him, who are pretending to be righteous, pretending to be sincere, pretending to come ask open honest questions of him. But why are they doing this? To trap him so that they might deliver him over to the governor so that he might be put to death. This is the way it will be, right? Even if we're living a righteous life. Actually, it's especially if we're living a righteous life. If we are living a righteous life, this is what will happen to us. No one ever lived like Jesus Christ. Yet he was not without a full supply of naysayers, critics, enemies, spies, liars, and murderers. And he says in Matthew 10, 25, It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? This is what happened with Christ. And Jesus is saying, this is what will happen to you. This is what the psalmist is saying. The wicked spies upon the righteous and he seeks to kill him. So even though we live a godly life, even if the wisdom of God is on our tongue, the law of God is in our heart, the spirit of God is directing our life, we should not expect to receive praise from men. We should not expect an easy, comfortable, luxurious life of peace and calm and safety and that we're never going to have enemies that will rise up within us. Even religious enemies from within the church. Isn't that what happened to Jesus in Luke chapter 20, 19 and 20? It wasn't the pagans. It wasn't the idol worshipers. It was the scribes and Pharisees. It was the religious people who were rising up against him and sending these malicious spies. So there will not be many people lining up to congratulate us for living a godly life. But on the contrary, we will have our enemies, malicious enemies, deceivers, pretenders, spies, naysayers, critics. This is the way it will be. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. Yet notice what it says next. Yet the Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. God will deliver the righteous from the malicious schemes and murderous plots of the wicked. God will not abandon his people to the evil of the wicked, but God preserves and protects them from all harm. So the reality of suffering, which is verse 32, prepares us for the battle to expect suffering. And then the protection of verse 33 comforts us in the midst of that battle so that we do not despair and turn away from the Lord when the wicked rises against us. Now here, it says that God will not leave us in their hands, right? That God will not leave the righteous in the hand of the wicked does indicate that temporarily the wicked may exercise some influence to do evil against the righteous, right? The psalmist cannot mean that God protects the righteous in such a way that the wicked are never able to touch them, that the wicked are never able to do anything to them. Right? We know that this cannot be the case because we have many examples in the Bible where the wicked are actually able to do something to 
the righteous, to hatch some scheme, some plot, to bring about some harm against them, to do these types of things. Right? So we cannot mean that they have no influence over us. So he has to mean it in a different sense. Right? We have many examples. We just read from Genesis chapter 4, 1 to 8, what did Cain do to Abel? He put him to death, right? Cain killed Abel. He killed him. He put him to death. Does that mean that God was not watching over Abel? That God was not protecting him? That God did not care for him? Right? What about Joseph? He was sold as a slave. He was thrown into prison because of malicious schemes that were brought against him because of wicked people. What about David? who was harassed for many years by King Saul, unjustly chasing him around, seeking to put him to death. We read about Daniel. Daniel was cast into the lion's den. John the Baptist, his head was cut off. Jesus Christ was put to death on a cross. Stephen was stoned to death by wicked men. Right In all of these cases, the wicked did plot against the righteous, In all of these cases, they did enact some wicked scheme against them, and they did have a type of triumph over the righteous. But it was only temporary. Temporarily, they exercised evil against them, but not ultimately, right? Ultimately, God delivered them. And that's what he means in verse 33, that God will not leave them in their hands. God will not let the righteous be condemned when they are judged. God will ultimately give victory to the righteous over the wicked. So the wicked may have short, temporary victory over the righteous, but that short victory will be followed by a skull-crushing defeat. Right? The righteous may have a short, temporary loss, but it will be followed by ultimate, eternal victory over the wicked and over all of their enemies. This is what it says in Genesis 3.15. When it's speaking of the seed of the woman and the serpent, it says that he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The serpent would bruise the seed of the woman who is Christ on the heel, indicating that the serpent would inflict some type of pain a blow upon the offspring of the woman upon Christ. And did the serpent do this? Yes. Whenever Jesus was put to death, this was by the activity of Satan. And he wounded him on the heel. But did it last forever? No, it was short. It was a very short victory because God raised him from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, what did Jesus do to the serpent? He struck him on the head, meaning he delivered to him a ultimate decisive victory that would end in his eternal ruin and his eternal demise. And this is the way it will be for the righteous as well. The wicked will bruise us on the hill, but in the end, we will bruise them on the head. We will get the ultimate victory because God will not leave us to their hands and God will not let us be judged on the day, or be condemned on the day of judgment. Look at Psalm 30. Psalm 30. And verse 1. Psalm 30 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up, and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. 
O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive, and I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Right there, the anger of the Lord is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Right? Weeping is for the night, but the shout of joy comes in the morning. This is the way it is in our sufferings. The sufferings may last for a moment. They are there for the night. But in the morning, God will give us the joy and God will give us the victory over all of our enemies. So even if the wicked exercise some power over the righteous, it is only temporarily. It is only for a moment. It is from God for our testing but it will only last a short period of time and then God will deliver his people from all of their enemies and from all evil. Even if their suffering ends in their death, God will deliver them from every form of evil so that they will ultimately get the victory over all of their enemies, whether seen or unseen. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 16. 2 Timothy 4, 16, which I recently heard someone say that the Apostle Paul was a celebrity, popular preacher. A celebrity preacher. But notice what it says in 2 Timothy 4, 16. How popular was the Apostle Paul? At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Who defended him when he was put on trial at his first defense? Nobody. He was all alone. This goes along with what we were teaching about Wednesday night, that the remnant will be few, they will be far between. And here, even the Apostle Paul was like Elijah in that he was all alone, left by himself. But who was with him? But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the mouth of the lion. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There, the Lord, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. God will even from the mouth of the lion, as he did with Daniel. And here the apostle is in prison, and he's about to be executed, and his enemies will execute him. But ultimately, who's going to give him the victory? God will, because God will safely bring him into his heavenly kingdom. In the end, God will deliver his children from every evil. He will bring them into his kingdom. In the end, ultimately, this is the case. But in the meantime, right, in this life, during the time of our testing, during the time that we are strangers and aliens on the earth, we will have to endure sufferings, hardships, and afflictions. And some of those sufferings will be wicked men who will spy upon us and will seek to put us to death. Well, when that happens, what are we supposed to do? Notice verse 34. 
Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. So what should we do while we are waiting to be delivered from all of our enemies? Right? While we are waiting to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, notice he says, you must wait for the Lord. We must be patient and wait for God to act on our behalf. And while we wait, we cannot grumble as they did in the wilderness. We cannot complain under the discipline of the Lord. We cannot complain about the oppression of the wicked. But we must patiently, quietly wait for the Lord to deliver us from our enemies and repay with afflictions those who afflict us. We cry out to God with supplications, with prayers, with tears, and we pray for God to deliver us from the hands of our enemies. But we don't grumble, we don't complain, we don't reject God, we don't question His ways in the world. We must be patient and we must wait quietly for the day of judgment to come upon the wicked. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is what the godly must do. And this is how we pass the test. We prove that we are the children of God by patiently enduring the testing of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Right? God's righteous judgment is seen in that we must be proven worthy of the kingdom of God. And how do we prove ourselves worthy of the kingdom? Through suffering. By enduring suffering. Right? This is how we prove that we are the children of God. Verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are, who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith and with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to wait for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict us. And while we wait, he says here, we must keep his way. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. Meaning we have to live a godly life. We have to continue living a righteous life. Living a life according to the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord is the pathway of his commandments. This is the way that we must keep while we wait patiently for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict us. So we have to endure the sufferings, and while we endure the sufferings, live a godly life, continue doing those things that are pleasing in the sight of God. 
not grumble against God and not throw our hands up and say, what's the point? We might as well go and join in and live a sinful life because what benefit do I get from living a righteous life? We cannot have this attitude. We can't have this perspective. We have to see that our reward does not come until we enter into the kingdom of God. And so we have to endure and be patient, wait for the Lord, and keep his way. Psalm 119, 32 to 37 describes for us the way of the Lord. 119, 32 says, I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimony and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. There, the pathway, the way, is the way of your commandments, the way of your statutes, right? The way of the law of God. And that's what he means here. Wait patiently on the Lord and keep his way, meaning keep his commandments, keep his law, be obedient to him, live a godly, righteous, blameless life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And this is the dilemma that the righteous will face, right? It is our running in the pathway of God's commandments This is the very reason that the wicked hate the righteous. This is the reason that we are persecuted in this life. It is their hatred for the obedience of God. Their hatred of the way of God and the fact that we do not join in with them in a flood of revelry and debauchery. But instead, we want to obey God and do those things that are pleasing to him. So even though the source of our persecution is our obedience to the way of God, we cannot turn away from the way of God in order to avoid suffering. We must continue on it. We must persevere in the way. We have to endure in doing the will of God. And this we will do if we delight in the way of God, as the righteous do. Right, The way is the law of God written on the heart. The way of the Lord is what is on their lips. And this is why the wicked hate the righteous and plot against them. This is why they spy upon them and want to kill them. And God does not grant immediate relief to the righteous. But he leaves them under this affliction for a season in order to test them and allows the wicked to harass them for a time. And during this season of testing, the righteous will either be proven as genuine or they will be exposed as false. Those who are truly righteous, those who have God's law on the heart, will not depart from the way of the Lord, even though their keeping of the way of the Lord causes them to have suffering. But those who are frauds and phonies, who do not have God's law on the heart, Whenever the going gets tough, what do they do? 
they get going, right? They hit the road. They scram and they say, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. Whenever the sufferings arise because of the word, they fall away and they turn away from it because they do not want to face hardships in this life. This is as it says in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 20 to 21, when Jesus is giving the interpretation of the parable of the soils, And he describes the seed that was sown on the rocky ground and why it did not produce any good fruit. Matthew 13, verse 20 says, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises, Because of the word, immediately he falls away. Right? He's happy to believe in Christ, to receive the word, to even do so with joy whenever it's all good and great and fine. But as soon as sufferings arise because of the word, what does he do? He falls away because he has no root. He has no true faith. So here in our passage, the prophet is admonishing us. He is imploring us to wait for the Lord and keep his way, which means do not grow weary in doing good. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and he will not delay. Right? The time of our waiting, the time of our endurance is very, very short. It is only for a very short season that we have to endure. So don't be a fool. That's what the psalmist is saying. Don't be a foolish person. Do not, because of the harassment of the wicked, let that cause you to turn away from serving the living God. But wait for the Lord and keep his way. For as Jesus says, it is by your endurance that you will gain your lives. In Luke 21, 19. By your endurance, he says, you will gain your lives. We must endure into the kingdom of God. And it is, as it says in Acts 14, through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. But these tribulations are short in comparison to what awaits on the other side of them. And only a fool would give up the reward in order to avoid the suffering, the short temporary suffering. Then notice in Psalm 37, the twofold promise concerning the reward for the righteous and the punishment for the wicked, right? What will God do for the righteous? And what will God do to the wicked who torment the righteous? Well, first, the righteous. He says, he will exalt you to inherit the land. God will exalt the righteous, and God will give them an eternal inheritance. Those who wait for the Lord, those who endure in his way, they will, in the end, inherit the land, they will receive an eternal inheritance from the Lord. Eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. This is what God has in store for his people. This is what awaits them. This is what awaits us on the other side of this life, on the other side of our sojourning. In the time of our suffering, we must endure it, but what awaits us is an eternal paradise an eternal bliss, 
of eternal joys and comforts in being with the Lord and with his people and the holy angels of God for all eternity. This is what awaits the people of God, an inheritance. They will inherit the land. Revelation 21 gives us a side of this. And we need to think about these things, both the reward of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked, because when we begin to wibble and wobble here and there, and we get shaky, we need to remind ourselves what is awaiting, right? This will give us endurance. This will cause us to gird up our loins and to press on and to uh, persevere into the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be with a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There, he describes a new heavens and a new earth, one where righteousness dwells where God's people are with God for all eternity, where they drink freely from living water, where God wipes all of their tears away, and there's no more mourning or crying or pain or sorrow. There's no more death. But who is this for? He says in verse 7, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. He who overcomes But those who are cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, they're not overcomers. They will not inherit that kingdom, but instead they will have as their inheritance the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we must set this before us. There is an outcome for the righteous and there is an outcome for the wicked. And whenever we grow weary, whenever we begin to faint and think it's too hard, I can't do it, why why do I live this way? I should just give up. We can't do so. We must set these things before us. And all who long for Christ will receive this reward, this inheritance, an everlasting inheritance, one that is being kept for us by God in heaven that thieves cannot steal, rust and moth cannot destroy this inheritance. And it is an eternal inheritance that will abide and that we will possess forever. And this is why we must endure 
through our present sufferings and afflictions. Right? And, and why it is so foolish for a person not to do so. Right? In comparison to what awaits for the people of God, our sufferings are nothing. They are light. They are momentary. They are short compared to what awaits us. Right? In two regards. First, our sufferings are only in this life. So at most, right, it will last 70 or 80 years. Even if we suffer from the time we're born until the time that we're dead, it's only going to be 70, 80, maybe 90 years. But is this the case with most people? It's not that we have unending, never-ending torment and suffering all the time. For many of us, we enjoy many days of peace, of quiet, of tranquility, even in this life, and we'll have some sufferings, but it's not constant. And in our case, none of us have even suffered to the point of shedding our blood. But even if we do those things, at most, it is short. It is momentary when you consider our life in comparison to eternity. So we should endure it, even if they're severe, even if it's the rest of our life. It is worth enduring the suffering because it is only for this life and the glory that will be ours is for all eternity. And then secondly, they're light and momentary in comparison to the weight of glory, right? The substance of the suffering, the weight of the suffering is light in comparison to the glory, the joys, right? The bliss that will be enjoyed by the righteous for all eternity. The glory we experience will far outweigh any suffering that we are called to endure in this life, even if we have to shed our blood, even if we lose our life for Christ. Amen. It's worth it. It's worth it to gain eternal life. As it says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in the life to come. And we know as well from Romans 13 verse 12 that the night is almost gone and the day is near. When will Christ return? In just a little while. In just a little while, the coming one will come and he will not delay. In just a little while, we will have eternal glory. We will have eternal bliss. We will have eternal comfort. We will have eternal joys and pleasures with the Lord. So why would we give up when we're almost there? Right? Why would a person running a marathon give up when the finish line is right ahead of him, when he can see it just down the road? So why would we give up on the Christian life when we've almost reached our destination? We've almost reached our goal. The only way that one would give up if it, is he has no faith. If he's so short-sighted that he is nearly blind and he has no faith, only that fool would choose the comforts of this life over the in eternal inheritance that awaits the people of God. So God will reward his people. And for this, we should endure and persevere, wait for the Lord, and keep his way. But also notice, just as there is a reward for the righteous, so there is a punishment that is coming on the wicked. He says there in verse 34, When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Now here are two things. First, the wicked will be cut off. When the wicked are cut off, God will deal with 
with the wicked man in due time. Notice there, he doesn't say if the wicked are cut off. He doesn't say perhaps the wicked will be cut off. He doesn't say I hope the wicked will be cut off or maybe this is what will happen. Is there any uncertainty in what the prophet proclaims here concerning the outcome of the wicked? No. He says when it happens, when the wicked are cut off. So it's only a matter of time. It's simply a matter of time, not a matter of whether or not it's going to happen. The event is a certainty. There is no possibility that this will not occur. It is only a matter of when it will occur. Just as the righteous man will be glorified in just a little while, so the wicked man, his day is coming as well, and he will be punished in just a little while. Now for us, we cannot think that God is going to sweep sin under the rug. He's not going to do so. We cannot think that the day of judgment will not come. We have to have this fixed in our mind. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Or as it says in Psalm 1 verse 5, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. We cannot think that we can live a wicked life, an unbelieving life, an evil life against God, and that we're going to escape the day of judgment. The ungodly, the sinful, they will be cut off for all eternity. And this we have as a promise from God. And we know that God cannot lie, and God will not change his mind, and he always fulfills what he has promised. The wicked will be cut off. And if we are accounted with the wicked we will be cut off on the day of judgment. We have to have that in our mind. But here, the cutting off of the wicked is not only so that we would endure and persevere and have fear of the day of judgment, but also in this context, it is a comfort. A comfort for the people of God in the midst of their sufferings. While they are being tormented by the wicked, they can take comfort and have hope knowing that in a little while, God will deliver them from their afflictions and God will repay their enemies according to what they have done and God will grant relief to his saints. God will give vengeance to his children against their enemies. They cry out for justice from God throughout this life. And they have to wait for that justice, but in due time, in just a little while, God will give them justice against their enemies. And that's what he says here. When God cuts off the wicked, who's going to see it? He says, you will see it, you being the righteous. This is the consolation for the people of God. While we are being persecuted in this life, knowing that one day they're going to get what they deserve. One day, God will repay with afflictions those who afflict us. And when God does that, he will let the righteous see it. They will witness it, they will approve of it, and they will rejoice in the holiness, the justice, and the vengeance of God that is carried out against their enemies. Right? And when he says that they will see it here, he doesn't mean that they'll see it in regret. 
Is there any hint that they're in anguish, that there's regret, that this is causing them discomfort to see these things? No. The seeing of it is bringing about rejoicing, praise, happiness in the people of God. And this is part of our glory, a part of the glorification that God bestows upon his people is that he will make their enemies that they had in this life, they will have to come bow down at their feet and they will have to testify that God has loved us and that what they did was evil and it was wrong. So for example, Cain, who murdered Abel because he was righteous, he will have to bow down before his feet. Such as Potiphar's wife, who unjustly charged Joseph with sin, she will have to come bowing down to his feet. Such as Daniel's enemies, who persecuted him without cause, they will have to come bow down before him. Such as Stephen's tormentors, who put him to death, they will have to come and bow down before him and know that God has loved him and that they were liars and what they did was wrong. This is the glory that God gives for his people. And it's not a sin. It cannot be a sin because God is the one who does it. And it's nothing to be ashamed of, right? It is not unbecoming of a Christian for him to have this glory or for God to give this to his people. This is justice. This is righteousness, right? This is reason to praise God. Is it evil if there is a man whose child is murdered? for that man to desire justice for the death of his son? Is it evil for him to want the murderer to be captured, to want the murderer to be put on trial, to want the murderer to be found guilty, and to want the murderer to be punished because of what he's done, even for him to be put to death because of what he's done to his child, even for the father to be there present when the man is executed and for him to get to see this person put to death? Is that an evil thing? No, it's not evil. What father wouldn't desire that if their own child was put to death? Well, then how can it be evil for God to give to his children justice against their enemies and for God to allow them to look upon it and for them to see it and for them even in this life to long for this, to desire this, to pray for this and to put their hope in the fact that one day God will grant them victory, and God will grant them vengeance against their adversaries. God will grant it to them. They're not taking it on their own. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord in Romans chapter 12. But for them to desire and to want God to give them the day of vengeance is not evil, because this is what God gives to his people. Now, I say that because there are many people who find this repulsive, this idea that God will give vengeance and that God's people will rejoice and praise God whenever he punishes evildoers for what they have done. And that they will even praise God for punishing those who persecuted them because of their persecution against them. Right? There's this idea that even God himself is in anguish on the day of judgment because he doesn't want to send sinners to hell. But he has to because his hands are tied. But this isn't the case at all. The reason people think this is because they don't believe the God of the Bible. They don't serve the God of the Bible. They have an idol that they've made up out of their own mind. God does not reluctantly send sinners to hell. He does so with great zeal. He does so with great zeal, with gladness, and with rejoicing. 
And even in this life, for the Christian who has a tormentor, a persecutor, some vile, unrepentant sinner who is persecuting him for righteousness' sake, to desire and pray for God to grant vengeance against his enemy, this is not contrary to the Christian life, but in keeping with godliness. Did Mordecai weep when Haman was hung? No, he did not do so. They rejoiced. They even had a festival to commemorate all that God did during that time and how it is that God delivered them from the hands of their enemies, Haman being chief among them. Psalm 52, a couple of passages that bear this out. And it's in both the Old Testament and New Testament. So even that uh, worthless trick that people try to use to get out of what the Bible teaches, they can't even use that. Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, almighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it, and I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. There, when the righteous see God break down the wicked man forever, he sees it, he fears God because of it, And also, what does he do? He laughs at him and says, what a foolish man. This man trusted in his riches. This man believed his riches could deliver him from God. Who's so foolish to think in this way? This is what the righteous man says when he's laughing, when he sees the fool who goes to his own demise and destruction because he trusted in his riches and did not put his refuge in the Lord. Psalm 91. There, the righteous man sees it, and he responds to it. Psalm 91. Verse 5. Psalm 91, 5 says, You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. You will see with your own eyes the recompense of the wicked, he says. This is what the righteous will behold. Also, Revelation. Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. In terms of chronology and 
date. This is as far away from the Old Testament as you can possibly get and be in the Bible. And yet notice here in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So many doctrines and truths taught there. One, he's confirming what the apostle says in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Right? These are those who claim to be Jews, but who are they really of? Satan. They are a synagogue of Satan. Yet they claim to be children of God. They claim that God loves them, and they claim that the Christians are detestable and hated by God. But what will God do on the day of judgment? He's going to make them come, bow down at the feet of these Christians, and make them know that God actually loved them and despised them. God loved the Christian and despised the fake Jew of the synagogue of Satan. So there, is that not vindication for the people of God? For their enemies to come cringing at their feet? How about Revelation 16? Revelation 16, verse 4. Revelation 16.4 says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged all things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar say, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Here, this is a holy angel saying this. And what is he praising God for? You gave them blood to drink. They shed the blood of your saints and of your prophets, and now you've given them blood to drink. Their punishment is fitting to their crime. This is what they deserve, and this is what you, O God, have given to them. Justice. Justice in accordance with the righteousness of God. Then one last place, Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of, of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, 
for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So here, the saints, the multitude in heaven, which is the elect of all time, gathered in heaven, and they are praising God for what? For his judgment. His judgment against the great harlot, Babylon the Great, which is the world, the people of the world, right? It's not just some inanimate city. It is the people who occupy that city, the wicked people who occupy that city, and they're praising God because the smoke goes up forever and ever. And these are the souls, these are the saints made righteous in heaven. So we know it's not a sin. It can't be a sin for them to do this. And who's the one that commands them to do it? God commands them to do it. So God will grant to his people deliverance from their enemies. And God will not merely allow, but expect and command us to rejoice over their demise. And the righteous will do so gladly. This is a part of the glorification and worship of the people of God. To look with joy upon the destruction of the enemies of God. And to look on their their own enemies in their destruction. Because our enemies, if we're suffering for the sake of righteousness, are God's enemies. They are one and the same. To praise God, to rejoice that God has given the wicked justice. It is what they deserve. This we do now by praying and asking for God to deliver us, and this we will do for all eternity. And those who refuse to do so show that they don't understand sin and they don't love God, right? Because if people are doing this against God, then how can we not want God to defend his own honor and to defend his own name? Only if we don't know him, only if we don't love him. One last passage, Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. Verse 22. Isaiah 66, 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Here, speaking of eternity, the people of God, the righteous, will go forth and look on the corpses of those who transgressed against God. They will see their punishment. They will see their agony. And this is a part of their eternal existence is seeing these things that God has done to those who are his enemies. This is what the psalmist is speaking of. God will cut the wicked off, and when he does it, you will see it. And God will grant relief to you. And while, until that day comes, we need to wait for the Lord, and we have to keep his way. And we have to set our eyes, fix our eyes, upon the reward that awaits the righteous and the punishment that awaits the wicked, so that we will continue to depart from evil and do good, live a godly life, and endure to the very end. So let us then fix our mind upon these things and let us press on until we enter into the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we do thank you that, Lord, it equips us with all that we need, Lord, for life and for godliness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we know that according to, Lord, your will, Lord, that you have appointed for us, Lord, that we would suffer in this life. And that, Lord, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Lord, this is what you have for your people now. And, Lord, a part of these sufferings will be wicked men. Lord, wicked men who will spy upon the righteous. Lord, who would even seek to put them to death. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from them. Lord, protect us from their evil schemes. Lord, protect us spiritually, Lord, in our faith, that you would give us a strong faith. Lord, one that is not quickly and easily shaken. Lord, that is able to endure through these sufferings and through these hardships. Lord, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that you will not leave us into the hands of the wicked. Lord, you will not let the world, the flesh, the devil, Lord, have any power over your people. Lord, whatever they are able to do, we know it comes from you. It's not outside of your will. And Lord, ultimately, we know that you will deliver us from all of them. And Lord, we thank you that though we may have enemies that will rise up against us, Lord, and many who will turn away from us, that, Lord, you will ultimately give us vengeance on the day of judgment. And, Lord, you will prove your servants to be in the right. And those who oppress them and who reject them, Lord, they will be proven to be false. Lord, we thank you that you do have an inheritance for your people. And that, Lord, it is being kept in heaven for us even at this very moment. And, Lord, we thank you as well that you will cut off all evildoers and that, Lord, you will allow us to see it when you do it. Lord, we thank you that you give to your people this glory and that, Lord, you give to them justice and vengeance against all of their oppressors. Lord, may we not take matters into our own hands, but, Lord, continue entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. Lord, help us to be like Christ, who whenever he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Lord, whenever he suffered, Lord, he did not repay with evil those who did evil to him. But Lord, instead, he did good and he entrusted himself to you. Lord, knowing that you would give him victory over all of his enemies, Lord, in your timing. And so, Father, may we be of the same mind. And Lord, help us to see that our sufferings, Lord, are short and they are momentary. Lord, they are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in the life to come. Lord, give to us greater faith. Lord, that these heavenly realities, Lord, would be of greater substance to us, Lord, than the things of this present world. And Lord, help us to endure to the very end. So Lord, be with us. Lord, watch over us, protect us. Lord, in all things, Lord, for your glory and for our good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.